The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 John chapter 3. And we're going to start in verse 1, okay? So we've made it to chapter 3. Hallelujah. Uh, We're going to continue today with our series, Up Close and Personal. Uh, This is an expository study of the book of 1 John. And you might not be familiar with that word. I'm going to take just a moment to explain it to you. There's several different, and there's probably more than just these, but these would be the primary two that people talk about. There's different ways to study and teach the Bible. And so the two primary ways that Bible teachers will teach the Bible is either in an expository manner or in a topical manner. And so what you have sometimes is this this false dichotomy. People have kind of their pet preference, things that they like better. So some guys will say that the way we've been going through 1 John, that's expository. That's taking in, in order, verse by verse, and dealing with it exactly as it is stated and seeing what it is the Lord would speak to us that way. That's an expository handling of the scriptures. Then you can, the other uh, teaching style would be topical. And so what you would do is pick a topic. For example, you could deal with sin or grace and you would consult all of what the, the whole word of God has to say about that. And you would maybe look at different verses that speak to that issue of grace or that issue of sin. And uh, what you'll have sometimes is people that they, they have a preference, and what, what we're prone to do sometimes is think that our preference is the only way that's right. And what I just want to let you know, our conviction here at Love City is that both teaching styles are valid and valuable. There are guys that are better at preaching expository. There are guys that are better at topical. I think there's time and season and um, a situation for both. And so we are not going to do one or the other just exclusively. Sometimes we'll take a book of the Bible and go straight through it like we are with First John which has been really fun. I've been having a good time in First John. I don't know if you have, but I am. So at least act like you are. Nod your head and smile every once in a while, okay? It'll keep me encouraged anyways. Because if you're not reacting, I'm thinking you're not getting it, and that makes it longer. So if you want to shorten these things, just get a little happier and act like you hear, you hear what I'm saying, okay? That's a little trick I'll teach you right now. That's free. Um, so that's expository and topical preaching. We think both are valuable, and uh, we'll use both because... Um, I think different situations can, can call for each, and so we're not going <clears> to <throat> argue with anybody about it. If, if somebody only likes one or the other, praise the Lord. Um, we like it all. I just want to be in the Bible. I don't really care, right? Amen. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We are in um, chapter 3, and uh, we're going to start in verse 1. We're going to read the first 10 verses together, and then as we've been doing, we'll, we'll jump back to the beginning and kind of take it verse by verse, little chunks at a, at a time, and see what it is the Lord would speak to us. Okay, so first we'll start in chapter 3. Verse 1, here we go. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Okay, let's get to work. we got 10 verses to get through. It's going to be fun. Verse 1, okay, so let's get back to there. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Now, first of all, the thing i got to call your attention to, the question i got to ask you, something i got to know is, are you over this yet? 
this first simple fact, John starts with this encouragement, that we are children of God. That's still such a big deal to me because the reality is that God could have redeemed us as simply soldiers in his army. He could have redeemed us as simply servants in his kingdom. And he would have been incredibly gracious just to do that. To take us from rebels and wretches and enemies, those who had set our face and our intentions against him, and take us and bring us to his kingdom of light. I don't care if all he promised me was I could clean the stables in heaven if they have them. I got a good deal there. Yet, he went so much farther than that. He didn't just leave it at saying, you can come and be a servant in my kingdom. You can come and be a soldier in my army. Those, those would be the greatest honors I could ever have bestowed upon me. But he said, further than that, more than that, here's what I want. I want you as my kids. Come and be my sons and my daughters. It's a big deal. That's a real big deal. It's cause for joy. And dear ones, I need you to hear this. If joy does not leap inside of you at the very thought of that, if, if it's not difficult for you to restrain spontaneous praise, when you think about the fact that he did not just leave it at redemption to some lower ranking in his kingdom, which he would have been very gracious in doing, but he called you and he's brought you in as sons and daughters, then if, if at this thought joy does not leap in you, if at this thought you're not overtaken with excitement that the supreme and sovereign creator of all that is and ever will be has invited you into his royal family, if that doesn't cause excitement in you, then I'm, I'm going to ask you, shake yourself. Because I love you. Shake yourself. There's something not connecting there. Because to understand what's being said there, to be understand what we deserve and what we're getting instead because of Christ, it, it should not, it can never become a common thing. It's not this thing that, oh, I've heard that enough times, like, you know, I've had cheese pizza so many times that I could just, I'd be cool if I never had it again. It's, it's, it's not like that. I don't care how many times I hear, you were headed for hell because you deserved it. But God in his mercy, because of nothing you did, but because of everything he did, took you and made you not just that, but brings you in as his son. And this is the one, this is the guy, this, this is the creator guy, the one that spoke and said, let there be light. And that happened. He invites me to come and relate to him. The New Testament, the most prevalent relational example I'm given for how I come to God. I could come to him as a judge. I could understand him as, as savior, as king, and I do. But he invites me most often to come and say to him, Father. You feel that right there? That's beautiful. That can never, ever, ever, ever get old. we got to teach our kids, 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 kids. Here's, the, here's something to be happy about when you're sad and it's cloudy outside and, and you're bummed out because you've got nothing to do. Just think about this and you'll get happy again. You're not going to hell. You're going to be in heaven with Jesus forever. And, and you get to be his brother and sons and daughters to the God of the universe. Wow. It's wonderful. Amen. The blessings and the benefits of our adoption as sons and daughters are too numerous to count. But that adoption, it can come with a difficulty as well. If we look at the second part of the verse there, it says, for this reason. So he says, we are children of God. He, and he assures us of that. But he says, for this very reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. And so there's, there's difficulty that also comes in being associated with the God of the universe in the midst of this world that isn't always so excited about him. There will always be a variety of reactions as you walk out your faith. Uh, some are going to notice the hope and, and, and the joy and the love that flows from you because of what God has done in you. Uh, and they're going to inquire about that, the source of those things. Why are you calm when everyone else is freaking out? Why are you seemingly loving and kind when, when most other people are about them? Why, why do you seem to have joy and, and, and you don't seem prideful or about stepping on somebody else to, to get where you want to get. There's something different about you. So where does, where does that come from? That's the reaction that some are going to have, and that's why Peter admonishes us in 1 Peter 3.15 to always be ready for an, with an answer for the hope we profess. His assumption is that our life will be so, it'll run so cross-grained to what everyone else is doing. Peter's just assuming if you're a Christian, if you've been bought with blood more precious than anything else ever, that the joy and the love and the peace that's going to 
just be exhibited in your life is going to open up doors of opportunity for conversation. And he says, have an answer ready. When somebody says, why are you joyous all the time? You don't go, you know, I don't know, I eat a good breakfast. No, man, it's, it's, that's not it. It's that, it's that you have a source of joy that's never changing. See, most people's joy, it's, it's, it's based on circumstance, and that's not even really joy, that's, that's happiness. Most people, if, if things are going their way, then they're happy, but for the Christian, we are, we are admonished all through the scriptures that it doesn't matter, good, bad, in the middle. I may not be thrilled about what's going on, but I still always have an anchor of joy. And that's because my joy flows up out of things like what John started chapter 3 with. It doesn't matter if I got no money, if I'm sick, if my house just burnt down. It doesn't matter if my car broke and I didn't have the money to fix it. It doesn't matter even if my kids are sick, which would hurt me deeply. Still, I have joy because I'm still a child of the king. And if the worst thing that happens is the house crumbles down around us and we all die, we just won. So that joy doesn't change. There's days I'm happier than other days, right? You know, I, I didn't get my grass cut this weekend. I'm, I'm not that happy. It looks long and shabby, okay? And I'm the last guy on the street, so I'm that guy this week, so that's awesome. I'm not as happy as a few weeks ago when I beat all the neighbors. See, they waited till the weekend. I did it on Thursday, so I was low grass guy. That was a happier week for Pastor Vince. But this weekend, I, I, I still got joy. Grass is long, but I still got joy, right? It's a dumb example, but you, you understand what I'm saying. You can't shake or take this joy from me. I'll be a child of God no matter what's going on around me. And dear ones, if we could get that right there, I'm telling you, if we could just get that and walk in that and then be ready to answer people when they ask about that, I'm telling you right now, we could get this gospel to more people. If we would just live in the steadfastness that comes in, in trusting Christ and letting the wellspring of our joy be out of this word and the truth that it conveys. And you could just hang out in 1 John and get plenty of material to stay joyous forever. But we got a whole Bible full of good stuff, okay? Amen. Um, now, some are going to notice those very same things. Some will notice that you're different. They're going to ask you about that, and then you're going to have an opportunity to share the gospel. And that's beautiful. That's what we're looking for. Some people will notice those same things but have a different reaction. Um, some of them, their, their disdain for anything godly is going to cause them to avoid you to the point of pretending not to know you. And this is what, you know, Jesus experienced this. There was his family, I'm sure, they, like they grew up with him. You know, Mary's thinking, I, I, I changed this guy's diaper, and now he's running around saying that he's God. And so Jesus experienced some, you know, people trying to act like they didn't know him. And there's people that will avoid you because the joy that you will have, the fact that you aren't down in the dumps all the time like everybody else, that's going to seem weird to them. Now, eventually, we're going to hope that that wins them over, but there's people that it, you may even have persecution. I don't want you to, you know, I talked about the happy part of it, but I need to also be fair and say some people aren't going to like the fact that you're happy all the time. They're going to think you're fake or, you know, what, whatever else they decide about it. You may be persecuted for it. You may have people that just clearly avoid you, don't like you because you associate with Christ, because you're marked by his characteristics. you gotta, you got to know that that's going to happen. And there, there was many in, in the world in the time of Christ that did. They heard his message, and they understood, and they did worship him uh, rightly. But there were many also that didn't get it and acted like they didn't know him. Uh, speaking of you know, people pretending not to know you, I... This might be a dumb example. I can really remember what that feels like from um, like back in high school around homecoming and prom time. Uh, I, was <clears throat> I was on the Husky side. There's people that have pictures floating around, so if you dig hard enough, you'll find them. I was on the Husky side and about as fashionable as I am now, and so <laughs> it was not good. Uh, the whole asking girls to the dance thing didn't work out real good for me. So um, it's funny because you'd say, you know, hey, you want to go to the dance? Who are you? Uh, we've been in school together for seven years, um, sat together in, in, in several classes, so you know who I am, right? But uh, they, they didn't want to admit that. And, and I'm just, I'm thankful to God today that um, God, I think he did like the shallow howl thing with Natalie. You guys know what I'm talking about? There's this movie and this guy, he's like, 
you know, he's, he's real shallow and all about physical appearance. And so somehow, I don't remember what happens exactly, um, but he, he ends up that he sees this very, very large woman, but through his eyes, she, I think it's uh, Gwyneth Paltrow or, or something like that. And so um, I think that's what God did with Natalie because I needed time to get past the whole how I looked thing and get her to love me. So part of why I'm telling you this, I want to give some of you guys in here hope, okay? I love you. Um, you know, here's the thing. Um, you don't have to be as good looking as you think you do to get a good Christian girl. Here's what you need. You need to be on fire for Jesus, okay? That's a big deal. And secondly, you got to be willing to be this kind of a little bit smushy and, and, and romantic, and, uh, and you can win her over. You can get one, okay? Um, I just want to provide hope for you, okay? Because it happened for me. Um, let, let me hear amen from every guy in here that knows he married way up in the looks department. Amen. There you go. Now, Guys, you know that Pastor Vince loves you because what I just set you up for there was, was an opportunity, you know, to gain some brownie points. So if you miss that, you need to get over your pride and amen loud when I give you those shots, okay? Uh, clearly, I think the majority of us in here know that we, we, we married up. Um, and if you miss that opportunity, wives, just, just give him grace. I'll give him another one. We'll help him. Um, Amen. So let's go to verse 2. Let's, let's get out of that because <clears throat> there's a few guys I can tell they got elbows in their ribs, and so we'll move on and see if we can distract the wives. Um, verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God. It has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. So here's the first thing that uh, what we have here, again, is um, it's assurance from John. And so I want, what I want you to hear out of this is that if you have put faith in the finished work of Christ, in his death, in your place for your sins, and then his triumphant victory over sin and hell and the grave, through his glorious resurrection, hear me in this. You are a child of God. That's the deal. Have you believed in the good news about Jesus? Because the devil often wants to come and question that. He wants to nullify you. He wants to slow you down and get you worried more about, am I really a Christian? I messed up. I think this way. How could I be a child of God with some of the crazy stuff that goes through my head? Here's what I want you to remember. Every one of us would feel less weird if those talk bubbles really existed above people's head and we could see what was going through their mind, okay? Most of what we struggle with, we're not alone on. Uh, that's, that's the truth. However, your enemy would want to convince you that you are. You're the weirdest, you're the worst, you're the dirtiest. Um, and I'm not trying to excuse thoughts that would hold themselves up against what the scriptures say is true. The Bible says we've got to take those thoughts and cast them to the ground. However, I just don't want you to be uh, prone to spend a lot of time questioning whether or not you actually are a child of God. And that's what John's wanting to tell his people here. Listen to me. If, if you put faith in Christ, beloved, we are his children. And that's a good message. I'm glad he's willing to remind me of that. The scriptures, they do give us glimpses of what we will be like in eternity. And so that's kind of what he's talking about here. He says, um, we are children of God. It has not appeared yet as what we will be. So he's talking about kind of in the end, the eternal state. We're not totally sure what we're going to look like, what all is, is going to be involved in that. Um, we get glimpses of it throughout the scriptures, but we don't get the full picture or we don't get the answer necessarily to all of our questions about what eternity is going to be like as it pertains to us, you know, what exactly are we going to look like? What does a glorified body look like? What, you know, how much of our own personality is retained? I, I am of the opinion, and I'll say it that intentionally, that you're going to retain the characteristics that make you you. Um, I don't believe that what happens when we get to heaven is that we all just kind of, like in Eastern mysticism, what they would say is we all just kind of become a drop in the ocean and melt back into each other and, and there's no distinction. I think God has been very intentional in creating us the way he has different looks, different gifts, different personality bends because I think he enjoys that. I think he enjoys the variety in his kids um, and it's going to make heaven interesting like earth is, Right? But we'll remove the sinful parts that often makes our personality differences an issue, right? Because sometimes sin and pride creeps up, and those cool things that God put in us, we, we end up not liking about each other. So I am pretty confident we'll totally be over that in heaven, because 
As far as I can tell, what we're basically going to do is be so awestruck with the glory of the risen Christ that we're going to spend a whole lot of time just staring at him and worshiping him, whether you're on your knees, flat on your face, standing up. I think it's going to be a whole lot of just, wow. <laughs> I, think, I think a lot of heaven is going to be about that. And uh, for, for, some of you, for some of you, I'm concerned because I know that you've not necessarily experienced Worship the way the Bible describes it. You, you've not necessarily tasted and seen of, of God's tangible presence in such a way that it would make you be excited to think that all of eternity is going to be more of that. But I just want to assure you, keep pressing for that because I, I can tell you, this is the God's honest truth. Here on earth, I have experienced the tangible presence of God in such ways that when I think that I'm going to have that for eternity and, and, and more... It, there is nothing that even begins to be concerned in me about possibly being bored. I've been in rooms with people where we've worshipped Christ for hours and hours and hours and have not had any idea what time it was going to be when we emerged from that room because we didn't care. <laughs> we were just happy to be in his glorious presence. And I, and I think the only reason he, he kicked us out of the room is because if we didn't eat, we would die. <laughs> uh, stuff like that. And so I'm just telling you, keep pressing for that. I want you to raise your expectation. You know, when we, when we have worship, and, and you need to worship in your homes, you know, that's something that I, I don't know if you do, man. Find, find worship music that glorifies Jesus. Play that in your home. Play that with your kids. Be singing to Jesus all the time. Um, you know, a, a few months back, Jordan did a real good job talking to us about Christians having a responsibility to have a song in our heart, man. That's part of what keeps that joy stirred up, that gratitude stirred up as we're singing to Jesus. And it's awesome. And if you've got kids, I, this is the truth. This happened to me this week. I didn't intend on saying anything about this, but, uh, <clears throat> well, actually, let me, let me say this first, and then, and, and then I'll tell that story. So just put a bookmark there. Uh, the, the scriptures do give us glimpses of what it's going to be like in eternity, but not the full picture. And, and part of that, the reality is, I think it's because we couldn't comprehend with our finite minds, I think, what all God would have to try to communicate to us to help us understand how good eternity is going to be. Like, and, and here's the example I thought of. It would be like trying to get my 10-month-old, Max, to understand the inner workings of, of an internal combustion engine, right? So I'm going to sit down with my 10-month-old. I'm going to explain to him, okay, buddy, here's how a V8 works, right? And so I can start talking to him about, you know, I can have a brilliant presentation about the air and the gas coming together, creating combustion in the cylinder, and that moves the piston, right? And and so on and so forth. And here's, here's what would happen. By the end of it, he would stare at me blankly, and he would probably do the sign language for more, because that gets him food, and that's the only sign language he knows. And I think it's because he's decided that's the only one he needs. He's not going to care a bit about what I said, because I'm talking way over his potential to understand. And so God's a better dad than me, and he's not going to try to explain things to us that our finite mind just couldn't possibly grasp. The glories of eternity with him, I, I'm just sure of this, are far, far beyond what we could grasp. I hope me and my little buddy, when he gets to a certain point, we can talk about a V8 and, and he can get it, but he's not there yet. And we're not there yet. Right? We're not, we, we we're not going to get everything that God gets. But I just know it's real good. I'm looking forward to it. And, and I'm, happy, I'm happy to trust him in the spots that he leaves dark. He doesn't tell me everything. Yeah, I've got questions that, sure, I'd like answers to, but if he hasn't made it plain, then I, I probably don't need to know. He's smarter than me, and I trust that. He's a good dad. Okay? Um, and if he, if, he, if he doesn't stop with the food thing, he's going to have a rough time at school dances too. So um, <clears throat> we're, we're working on that. We're getting him on an exercise program. It's going to be all right. Um, I was, I was going to say about singing, man, um, I'm... I'm it's just, it's cool to see the spirit in your kids because Max, um, he, both of our kids at that age are like, they're just really, um, I think they're just people, people, but they really like attention and we try not to spoil them, we make them play by themselves, but there's just times when it's like, you know, they want to be in somebody's face and, and he was real grouchy and so um, Natalie was gone doing something so I had the kids and, you know, I'm starting to uh, want to just, you know, lock him in his room and, and you know, just go somewhere else so I can't hear him. I'm getting to that point, and I just thought, you know what, I'm just going to sing to him. And 
this is the other thing you need to realize is that uh, you don't have to sing pretty in order to worship the Lord. Because I did it, okay? And so you hear the gravel in this voice. We're not getting um, anything beautiful out of this as far as songs are concerned. But I I started singing to him, um, sang nothing but the blood. And then I sang that song that we sing. Um, I've been singing that to Lucy since, I mean, she was little, little. And she can finish a bunch of the words now. uh, There is no one higher. There is no one greater. And I started singing that to him. And I'm talking, he was like... If he was a month older, he was at spanking mode, right? He was, he was being bad. He was being a little terror. He was hulking out. And uh, I, I promise to you, I'm not embellishing. His face calmed. And this is my ugly singing. But I started just praising the Lord with him there on the couch, man. And, and it, I could just feel a sweetness come over him. I don't know if I've seen since he's been born. And so all I'm saying is worship God in your home. Worship God with your kids. If you don't have your own kids yet, worship God with other people's kids because their pure and humble spirit will help you to not be such a punk. Okay? All right. What we do know, one thing that has been uh, made clear is that we're going to be like Jesus. Uh, Romans 8 makes it clear that we're being conformed to his image, that part of the whole plan of what God is doing with us is getting us to look more, think more, be more like King Jesus. That's, that's what we're headed towards. And so we know that. Um, and and f- for the Christian, this should be enough to keep us excited and motivated because we, we see how good Jesus is. We see how wonderful he is. To know that that's our end goal, that should give us motivation and excitement to be able to keep running our race. We may not know all that we want to know about what it's going to be in the end, but I do know I'm going to be with him and like him, and that's exciting, and that makes me want to keep running towards him. Uh, And this is exciting for the Christian, but there are many people who absolutely hate the idea of being like Jesus because they hate him. And uh, I need to say this, hell is for those people. And some of you don't like that. I know that the culture around us is increasingly moving towards a heretical view of God and eternity where the rationale is a loving God could never send anyone to hell. And they're, they're right in one sense because I don't believe God does send people to hell. They choose to go there. That's how that works. As much as it breaks the heart of God, he gives everyone what they want. There are many who don't want anything to do with being like Jesus now or in eternity. And God's not going to drag anyone kicking and screaming to spend eternity with him. I, listen, I love people, man. I, I understand the struggle of thinking about hell as the Bible describes it. It's a bad deal. But I also understand that God is just and he's merciful and his love far outweighs anything I could possibly have. And so this discussion about how could a loving God ever send someone to hell, ultimately there are people that would be miserable in heaven because they hate Jesus. And so they have the option to reject him and go to hell. I don't like the thought of that either, but it is. And all of the attempts by modern theologians to to try to run to the Greek and find some way to erase hell from the scriptures, that's it's not true. There are those that won't be with Jesus forever. It's the worst thing I could possibly think of, and that's why I want to spend every minute of my life trying to tell as many people as I can about Jesus. See, when I think about hell, I don't get mad at God. I get motivated to tell the gospel to somebody. That's the right way to think about it. <laughs> if you care about it, don't, don't try to sit there and, and put God on the, on the stand as if you're going to judge him. That's not how this works. If the thought of people going to hell bothers you, then lace up your boots and find some way to get out there and do gospel work. Quit being intimidated by people at your work and, and live out with such joy that they have to say something to you. Make them either hate you or ask you what's wrong with you so that you get to talk about Jesus. And then even the haters can hear it when they're trying to hide across the room acting like they don't know you. we got to get the gospel out, as many people as possible. Because I want as few as possibly can to not be with us with Jesus forever. Amen? You feel that in your heart? You care about that? One of the signs of somebody that's been captured by, by Jesus, that their heart has been transformed, is that they'll care about that. And so we should. Verse 3. 
And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. All of our hope for the future rests in having a rich relative. He's our big brother, and his name is Jesus. He's the firstborn and, and the first redeemed of all of the children of God. And I need, to, I, need, I need to tell you this. Our hope is not in our bank account. It's in Christ. Our hope is not in our job. It's in Christ. Our hope is not in our investments. It's in Christ. Our hope is not in our government. It's in Christ. Our hope is not in our favorite sports team. Because don't you know they'll let you down? It's in Christ. If our hope is placed in him, then we will have joy and we will have reason for further and more compound hope. When our hope is fixed on him, our hope is fixed on our eternal destiny of being with him and like him. And it makes us want to be with him and like him now. When we think about the fact that our destiny is to be more like him and to be with him, it should cause in us a hunger and a thirst to be with him and like him now. And you could ask, well, how, how is it I can be with him? It's very clear from the scriptures that in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. I can, I can spend time in this word and I can literally spend time with King Jesus, my Savior. I can learn what he thinks what he would say in a given situation, and he will speak to me by his Holy Spirit and through this word. Sometimes I think how cool it would have been to be one of the disciples, to sit around that campfire with Jesus and just hear him teach me something straight from his mouth. I mean, how awesome would that be? And yet, I think the disciples would look forward to me, and if they could, smack me in the head and say, son, You've got the entirety of the scriptures, full and complete. You've got the whole story. You get to see the whole thing laid out and unfolded. I think they'd be jealous of what we have, and yet we treat it sometimes as if it's second rate to having some special experience with Jesus. He gave us the word, and he's invited us, come. Come and be with me. And, of course, the more time you spend with him, the more you'll be like him. On this, uh, on this subject of, of hope and where it's fixed, um, I've noticed that for some reason um, the story of Job has come up a lot this week in, in my life. Uh, some, sometimes working throughout the day, if I'm by myself, I'll, I'll t- try to redeem that time. I'll be painting something or whatever, and I'll turn on a podcast. And so um, listening to uh, Ravi Zacharias and William Lane Craig this week debate an, an atheist guy, and, and one of this guy's pushbacks was the story of Job. He was trying to run to that to show how mean God is. And um, then this week, again, just randomly, uh, one of the brothers here texted me, and they were struggling through, trying to work through that story. And I've been walking with the Lord now enough that um, I'm less prone to chalk things up to coincidence. And so that was in my mind as I begin to look through these verses. And um, I think that something we need to keep in mind is that we can really get messed up if our hope is on our idea of what God should do with us or for us. Um, here's the thing with the story of Job, and, and specifically, so the guy trying to argue with, with uh, from, from an atheist perspective, saying that Job just shows how God is not a good father, that, you know, look at what he did, how could he do that to him? And, and then that was kind of along the lines of, uh, the brother that texted me, he was struggling with, you know, why, it seems like God almost wanted to prove something to Satan. Why would God have to prove something to Satan? That it doesn't, doesn't really compute. Um, <clears throat> and, and here's the thing about that story, and here's, here's what I'm pretty sure of. I, I, I think it's unwise for me or anybody else to assume we understand all of God's motives in anything that he does, because I'm not sure I have that potential. However, there's a couple of things I think we can be sure about. One is, uh, I think that ultimately, it wasn't so much about proving something to Satan, it was about proving something to us. Because what the story of Job allowed for, is for, for that to be recorded, and for all of us for all of time to see a couple things. One, how to respond in a godly manner when everything you hold dear falls down around you, when all of your life crumbles into ash, how is it you respond in a godly way? Because that's really hard to do. Job did that. And I, I reminded the brother that texted me that, you know, God knew beforehand that Job would stand. 
I don't think God would have done that with somebody that wouldn't. Because obviously part of the point was so that that story could be recorded so that we could see two things for all of time. Here's how to trust God in the midst of extreme difficulty. And here's a picture of God being faithful. That even when everything falls down around you, that he is going to restore and redeem you. And here's, here's one thing I think, I just believe this about Job. And, and I want to say that this is the right attitude for us. I think that if you were to ask Job if, if what came out of that was that the book of Job got to be in the scriptures and that God's people could learn those two lessons, what it is like to be able to persevere through tribulation and, and, and trial by fire and, and to trust God, if God's people would have that example for all the rest of time and that we could see that God is faithful to restore and redeem all of us, I think Job would tell you it was worth it. And that's what I would say to us today. I, honestly, I think some of us think that if we can kind of tell if God's happy with us, because if God's happy with us, we'll be healthy and prosperous, and it, it'll be all good things. And here's what I'm saying. If, if what God wanted to do with me was teach some people around me, teach some people that were viewing and looking in on my life, what it looks like for a man to lose everything but not curse God. And if what happened out of that, if he wanted to use my life to do that, and what happened out of that is one person came to faith in Christ and didn't go to hell but was with Jesus for eternity, if that cost me everything, I welcome it. I, I'm, it's worth it. And I, I want you to ask yourself, would you, would you say that? Would you be happy to serve him in that way? Would you be happy to serve others in that way? Now, God is also glorified in the blessing of his children. Don't, don't, get me, don't get it twisted and think that we all are going to have to suffer like Job in order for God to be glorified. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, if that were to happen, what would our attitude be? Is our hope in what our perception is of the goodies God should give us? Or we bless just to have him, if that's all we had left? That was fun, wasn't it? All right. Um, that's the right way to think. And, and if you disagree, I'd love to talk to you because uh, Job had it right. He said, naked I came, and if naked I go, glory be to God. Job had the right attitude, and I'm, I'm glad Job's in there, even though people try to use it as a stick to poke at God as if he's not just because of it, Okay? Let's move on to verse 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Uh, so here we, we see that these two things are synonymous. Sin is lawlessness, and lawlessness is the casting off of all restraint. Um, I think one thing that's interesting is in Proverbs it tells us that um, where there is no vision, my people perish. That's the way most people remember that verse. The literal translation is where there is no vision, my people cast off Restraint, And I think one thing we need to remember is, uh, and why so often we circle back around here at Love City to what our mission and vision is, is I want you to be vibrantly involved in something bigger than yourself. Because without that purpose that is higher than just the mundane rat race, we get to the point where we get bored and we start casting off restraint. And we start to, we start to tend to head towards lawlessness because, I mean, it's, it, this is a boring existence, honestly, outside of the mission of God and his kingdom, in, in my opinion. To go and work, to, to, you know, have a taller fence and a bigger boat than the guy next door, I mean, what? Seriously. It makes me want to puke in my mouth. That's, it's not even, that's not a life worth living. But to be involved, to be invited to be not only a soldier and a servant in, in a kingdom that's going to last forever, but to be a son to that king and, and be invited to invite others to come and do that, to be able to be on a mission to let people know that they don't, they don't have to spend eternity without a, a father that loving, but that I can carry the most important message that will ever be carried by anyone ever. I get entrusted with that. That's, that all of a sudden, life's less boring. I got something to do. And I've got vision. Our vision here is to see as many people as possible. Love, serve, and joyfully worship Jesus Christ. That's what we're doing. 
Our mission, the way we believe we're going to accomplish getting as many people as possible to love Jesus, is that we're going to love God, and we're going to love people, and we're going to make disciples. These are the things that Jesus told us. If you do that, people will come to me. That's what we're going to do. That's what I'm going to keep on doing for as many days as he gives me. And I just don't see it getting boring. Because it's still exhilarating when we put out a baptism sign up and people come and put their name up there. Because it it tells me that God is real. I don't care how many pundits are out there saying, oh, well, look at Job. God can't be real. Blah, 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 blah. I have a telescope, and, and so I'm smarter than God. Listen to me, man. God is real. And let me tell you something. I see the evidence around me all the time. Whether it's looking at the beauty and the changing of the seasons or it's looking in the eyes of someone that went from darkness to light. The reality is there. God is real. There's no question about it. And his word is true. Amen. So lawlessness is the casting off of restraint. I think having vision bigger than yourself will help you not get wrapped up in that. Now, When we believe the lie that God's laws and commands are not for our good, but they're holding us down or holding us back, we we end up in sin pretty much every time. This is the lie of the devil. This is the original temptation in the garden. Um, Yes, Mr. Snake, uh, I I realize that that fruit looks good, but God said we would die. And here's, here's Satan's answer. You will not surely die. God knows that if you eat of that fruit, it's going to make you wise like him. But you're going to know good and evil. God's holding something good back from you. How dare he do that? You deserve that. You should go eat that. The bag of tricks, is, it's, it hasn't changed and it's not that deep. We just keep biting the same dumb fruit. We keep, taking, we keep biting the same dumb lie. Okay? God's not holding something back from you. If he tells you not to do something, it is for your good. If he tells you to do something, it's for your good. You can take that all the way to the bank. True every time. And so be aware when the enemy starts to whisper to you, your own flesh starts to try to pull you towards something, thinking that, well, God's just restricting this from me because he's, he's the fun police. No. God is very much glorified in you when you enjoy him and when you have joy in this life. Absolutely. Okay? Verse uh, 5 and 6, let's read that together. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Verse 6, no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Uh, First of all, we know that Jesus was able to take away sin uh, because he was completely without it. So that's how he became sin for us. He was the perfect lamb. That was part of his mission to live a perfect life. Um, In verse 6, I want to point out that this, verse 6 is a really great example of why reading the scriptures in context is is so important. I want to show you this um, because this is part of how heresies and false teachings start. This is how people get mixed up because they'll take things like verse 6 and they'll write it on a postcard and stick it on their fridge and not read the words around it. And so if you just read verse 6, let's do that. Verse 6 says, no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. I mean, what does that sound like? That sounds like a, a call to perfection, and if you have sinned at all, that there's no way you know him. And we know that knowing him uh, is part of being with him in eternity. And so somebody could read just verse 6 and say, well, I've already blew that, and, and spiral into hopelessness. So What's going on there? Did John mess up? Did, did he not write what he meant to write? No. The reality is, just like reading anything else, I know that sometimes a certain scripture, we can memorize just a scripture, and that can be inspiring to us, and it can be helpful, and, and we should do that. But what we have to do is be careful to understand there's words before and after that, that, that help us to understand. And so uh, verses 4 8 and 9, help us understand what John is really saying. He's talking about the person who practices sin. And this has a connotation of habitual or repetitive sin with no conviction or repentance. Verse 9 tells us that this kind of behavior is impossible for someone who's really born of God. And so we see he starts, uh, he makes it clear in, in verse 4, he's, he's talking about people that, that practice sin, that what they're 
their default mode is, is habitual, repetitive sin. They're not convicted about it. They're not repenting of it. They're, they're just kind of doing their thing. The Bible talks about uh, where you can get to the place where uh, it's in Timothy that uh, your conscience can become seared as with an iron to the point where you no longer feel conviction. Those are some of the scariest verses in all the Bible. See, people, they, they get messed up. They worry about God judging them and like hitting them with a lightning bolt or doing something crazy like that. That's, look, man, I, I would much rather God strike me with a lightning bolt. I don't think he'll do it, but I, I would much rather him do that than turn me over to my own stupidity and just let me go to be ignorant and, 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 and to let my, my conscience be seared to the point where I no longer feel conviction. I would much rather be judged actively than passively. Because I would rather the lightning bolt hit me and get my attention. I don't care. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for stopping me. Because I, I don't want to stray away from you. I want to obey you. There's a difference between struggling with temptation and sin, but fighting against it and practicing sin. And so that's what, really, in, in verse 6, it, if you read the context, you understand that that's what he was saying. But he could have added these words and, and it maybe would have helped, and I think some translations actually do this, maybe the NIV, um, like no one who abides in him sins continually. That, that would help make sense and it would flow with the rest of the context. No one who sins continually has seen him or knows him. So part of what he's telling us is if you're that person, that you're just doing what you want continually, you know somehow that that's not the right thing to do, but you just don't care enough to stop, what he's saying is you, you may not know God. Because verse 9 will then tell us that, that no one who is born of God practices sin, continues to just keep doing what they want, though God has warned them to stop, or they understand through the word that they should stop. Nobody, nobody that just keeps doing that feels no conviction about it, doesn't repent about it. And that's, I want to make sure I make a distinction because all of us at times in varying seasons struggle with certain sins working through that and, and getting to the point of being free. So there's that. That's different. But if you get to the point where you're not convicted anymore, where you're not caring anymore, um, that's bad. That's lawlessness. That's practicing sin. And um, you can believe that grace covers that all you want, but the scriptures are clear. Christians don't do that. Okay? You really liked that one. That was good. It's a good one to amen on, wasn't it? Okay. Um, verses 7 through 10 are another set of verses that should make abundantly clear to us that the downward slide of love being defined as unconditional tolerance is absurd. In our culture, what most people understand love to be today is that you are unconditionally tolerant of their behavior. That no matter what they do, you will not challenge them, you will not try to question them, you will not in any way <clears throat> infringe upon their autonomous right to decide if what they're doing is, is right or wrong. The reality is that no society could function this way. It's completely absurd. And we're going to see as we read verses 7 through 10 that this is not the way God sees it. Okay, Little children, again we see John's affection fatherly tone for those that he's writing to. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. He cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. I want to call your attention to verse 10. Why would John put verse 10 in there if what Jesus meant in Matthew 7 is that you as a Christian should turn, totally turn off the ability you have at all to make a judgment? Because that's what people want you to believe. Everybody out here knows one verse if they don't know any other verse. What is it? Thou shalt not judge. We all know that one. And what they think that means is Christian or not, that nobody but God should judge anyone, make a judgment call in any way, shape, or form. What is John doing in these verses, if not giving us parameters to understand how to make judgments? Okay, 1 Corinthians gives us a little bit more 
shape to this and helps us to understand that our job as Christians is not to run around out here judging this world. They don't know. They've not yet come to the light. And so it does us no good to run around and point our fingers at them and say, you're a dirty sinner. Yes, that's obvious. What's given to us in the scripture as Christians is the responsibility of lovingly, not harshly, judging each other. Let me say it this way. If I came to this gathering next week and stood up here and said, hey guys, uh, here's the thing. I've been reading the Bible wrong the, the whole time and I don't, I don't really think it, it means what it, it says anymore. And um, what, what I'm going to do is get a girlfriend in addition to my wife and I'm just expecting you guys, are, you're going to be cool with that. <clears throat> if I ever do that, I, I expect some of you brothers with some spine to grab me on my way out and help me think right. Don't let me do that to my wife. Don't let me do that to my kids. Make a judgment about that. Because clearly I've lost my mind. Something's gone wrong. Make a judgment. Don't retreat to Matthew 7. Well, I shouldn't judge him. I mean, maybe he's right. Who knows? No! It's clear. I'm wrong. I'm sinful. And I should repent immediately. Now, would you want the same thing? Do you want to be challenged in your sin? Do you want somebody to, and, and, and the key here, the only way this works within a church family is if love is the motive. If, if we get people running around saying, "Woo, I got a judgment card. I can run around and, you know, start pointing fingers at people. That, that's not going to work. But I don't, I don't think most people, the, the culture has trained us so much that judgment is bad. We, we're going to have to like swing the pendulum back to just get people to be willing to stand up and say, brother, sister, l- listen, what? What you said there, what you did there, something I'm noticing, I think that's sinful and I love you and I want to talk to you about it, pray about it, and I want to encourage you to repent. Some of you can't even imagine doing that because you'd be judging them and you'd be right. And if they're smart, they're going to really be happy that you did that. They're going to be really, really thankful. We are supposed to judge each other inside the house. If somebody claims to be a Christian, then they are subject to the judgment of brothers and sisters. And it's hard to even say it because the word judgment has become such a, I mean, it, it's almost up there with four-letter words. Like, it just sounds dirty almost coming out of your mouth. It's not. It's righteous. And John helps us to understand here. He, he gives us a bunch of parameters. If somebody's running around the house saying, I'm a Christian, I love God, I just don't obey him. <laughs> nope. I'm going to make a judgment about that. And you should too. Say, no, brother, you're confused. Let me take you to the scriptures. I need to show you something. If you, if you love him, you'll obey his commands. Very clear. If you love him, you're not going to practice sin. You're going to practice righteousness. Because somebody can't be born of God. The seed of God cannot be in him and, and then practice sin continually, habitually, without repenting. You can't do that. It doesn't work. You're, you've been deceived, my friend. You think that you, you're a Christian. You think you are in right standing with God, but, but you're not. I love you. I invite you to repent, please. I love you. I want you to be with us, with God forever. I want you to experience the blessing of serving him in this life. Look, man, I need everybody to do this. You understand what I'm saying? I, I, don't, I understand that this, the book of 1 John, it's, some, it's cyclical somewhat in its reasoning, and so these are ideas that in the other sermons we've talked about, and sure, I could have tried to tweak this or take it a different way to make sure you didn't get bored, but I'm more concerned that if If he thought it was important to circle back around a few times, I want to make sure that we think it's important to circle back around a few times. We got to get this. We got to act right in the house. Not just do we have to be willing to challenge somebody because sometimes that's the most loving thing we can do for them, but we got to get better at being on the receiving end of it. We got to get happy and grateful when somebody's got the guts to love us enough to tell us, you're screwing up, I love you, stop. Because most of us aren't like that. If we're honest, we don't like being challenged. We don't like being told we're wrong. Amen? Amen. These verses we've read today are not complicated, but they are profound in their simplicity. First, we are reminded of what should be for us our greatest source of joy and peace, that we are sons and daughters of God. He starts with that. And that's, I can just feel... I, I just, I love, and I mean it when I say it, I love the book of 1 John. I, I relate to him so much because I can just, 
I know what he's about to do because he starts out by saying, how great a love the Father has given us. My beloved, you fools, quit practicing sin. <laughs> he's, he's loving them first. He's buttering them up. And then, he, and then he ends also, man. You, also, you always see he's so good at making a love sandwich. I learned that from John. That's the way I deal. If you know, and the leaders here know, man, they're, if I call them and I say, <clears throat> you know I love you, right? <laughs> they're, they're trying to get off the phone. They don't want to hear what's coming next. Um, but I do, because if, if correction's coming, it's, it's, it's coming in love. That's, that's the only reason I would, because conflict's not fun. Some of us... Yes, a few of us in here are twisted, and somehow we like conflict. The rest of you, I know you don't. You don't want to have a hard conversation with somebody. You want to talk about something else. But sometimes that's not the loving thing to do. If somebody's on fire, you got to say, <clears throat> I know you haven't noticed, but you're on fire. Let's put some water on that. That's more loving than not wanting to offend them, right? It's an age-old question. Does a friend tell you you got a big piece of lettuce in your teeth, or just let it ride, because that would be awkward? You tell them, man. Don't let me walk around here with lettuce in my teeth, people. You're my, supposed to be my family, man. Come on. I'm going to be thankful. I'm going to turn around and try to pick it without you seeing it and not being gross, but I'm going to be grateful, man. Just quit being weird. All right. So first he gives us what should be our greatest source of joy and peace, that we are sons and daughters of God. And then the rest of these verses, they explain to us the outworking of that beautiful truth. Uh, and, and though we will stumble and we will falter, as we seek to follow after Jesus, we're not going to stay down. We will remember that the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. I like that verse. He didn't come to just push him aside. He didn't come, he came to utterly destroy the works of the devil in your life and mine and in all the earth. I'm thankful for that. And so we will never be found practicing them. We're his people. We're not going to be found practicing the works of the enemy, practicing sin, making that our lifestyle. Yes, we will stumble. Yes, we will fail. The Bible is clear that we will not reach perfection until we were at his feet, staring into his glorious face. However, and I've told you this, and I want you to get this, we're not going to be sinless in this life, but each day the goal is to sin less. When we stumble and fall, we're there for each other to confront, encourage, pray for. Put our arm under you and help you carry him in if you need it. Whatever it is, we're in this thing together. I was talking to a brother in Christ recently who told me that he had battled with a particular sin for a long time. And he had continued to repent and cry out to God for help to be freed, but continued to be bound. It got to the point where he was so discouraged that he quit even repenting, figuring that God must have been tired of hearing it. And he continued to sink into hopelessness and depression and condemnation until God did something that many of you think you don't want, but it probably saved his life. God caused his sin to be discovered and sent people into the situation that were willing to make a judgment that, yes, this is sin, but they, and they were willing to call him to repentance, and they committed to fight with him by providing prayer and accountability. See, some of you got stuff you're still hiding, and, and you think the worst thing that could happen would be f- people figuring out. It's probably the best thing that could happen. Please don't practice sin and hide because you don't want people to judge you. Please don't do that. I would say to you, yes, you do. God in his mercy will send people into your life with the spine to make a judgment, but with a motive of love. This is where freedom and victory are found, my dear friends. Not in the shadows of isolation and sin, but in the light of fellowship with King Jesus and his people. I love you and we love you, and we invite you into that beautiful light. Amen? Okay, let's pray together. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, we love you. Lord, I thank you for the scriptures. I thank you for the book of 1 John. Lord, it's impacted my life in in, in ways I'll never fully understand. And I thank you that it is cyclical. I thank you, Lord, that as we work through it, it's causing us to deal with common themes again, that we have to come back around and and pound out the lies of, of the enemy that have tried to teach everybody that 
that tolerance is love, that just letting people do their own thing, that that's what loving people do. Lord, thank you for teaching us through your word that, that real love, it demands conflict, that real love is willing to stand up to sin and fight with our friends and family, to be willing to break chains with the power of the Holy Spirit. I thank you, Lord, that... Uh, this house is, is ever increasing in our transparency that, Lord, we would have a vibrant desire that if any sin would be hidden on, in us, that it would be exposed because we understand that the result of that is not shame because we have the gospel. That Because of the gospel, the result is, is mercy and that we're washed clean by the blood of Jesus and that as people get to watch us work through that process, they're encouraged in their faith. Lord, I just I rebuke isolation. I rebuke the lies of the enemy that would cause people to hide in shadows. And I ask, Lord God, that they would hunger and thirst for light and fellowship with you and your people. Lord, may you be glorified in this. And I just thank you for every single person, Lord, that's here. I thank you that they, they, didn't, they didn't and they don't bristle when we tell the truth here. But their, their hearts are soft. And they hear your word. And even if it doesn't sound right to them at first, Lord, that they're prayerful, that they allow your Holy Spirit to work in them. Lord, I just, I just thank you for this church. I'm thankful for them. They're your people. It's very clear. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.